And I wrote three books that didn't sell. When you are a new writer trying to sell your debut novel in genre fiction, you need to do something that's the same but different. So it took a while for me to be able to develop the tools that allowed me to tell the stories that I wanted to tell in, in a manner that that made my work attractive enough for somebody to buy because it's it's really hard if you're creating any kind of art, right? If you look back across human history, some of the most powerful truths that, that were communicated were done through fables or parables. We are preconditioned to appreciate storytelling. And I think some of the most effective self-help books or business books incorporate business cases or stories. I think as human beings, we're just pre-wired to be able to listen to stories, to want to communicate through storytelling. I know how to sell it to somebody. If they don't know how to sell it, it's going to be really hard for you to sell it. And you should be able to tell them that. Here are the authors that I write like. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an exciting guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is a repeat guest. He is a number one best-selling author. He has his own series of books, thriller books, featuring the intrepid hero, Matt Drake. He also writes for the Tom Clancy Universe. I'm speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Don Bentley. Welcome to the show, Don. Thanks, Nikki. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. It's a beautiful sunny day in Toronto. You know, I'm sitting <laughs> uh, overlooking the uh, the beach from my office. What could, what, what could be better? What could be better? Can't really argue with that, huh? Oh, no, you can't. You can't. So, Don, um, you got a new uh matt drake's book out it's called forgotten yeah. war and i actually read it which is what prompted me to reach out to you and say man this is really good you want to come back on the show let's uh let's talk about it uh and then i said yeah we're talking about this today it's good so you know it's a little bit of a departure uh i think in some respect from some of the other books but it's equally good if not better in many many ways let's talk about it. what made you come up with the idea for this particular book walk us through it Sure. So Forgotten War, like you said, is the fourth book in the series. And as I was getting ready to write it, um, kind of real world events intervened and, and took the book uh, a different direction than maybe I would have otherwise. And so the real world events I'm talking about are our withdrawal, the American withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021. And so I'm a veteran in Afghanistan. I served there from 2005 to 2006 as an Army Air Cavalry Troop Commander. And as I was watching kind of 20 years worth of um, blood and treasure and sacrifice uh, just go down the drain, I was trading texts and calls with other friends of mine that were veterans. And the, the question that seemed to come up over and over again was some variation of, was it worth it? Was 
the time we spent there worth it was the blood the the brothers and sisters we lost there worth it was was any of it worth it and and I couldn't answer that question and so what I did what I think writers do and tried to answer that question in the book Forgotten War and so Forgotten War like you said is a little bit different in that um, it takes place in 2021 um, partially during the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And then there's another timeline uh, that takes place 10 years earlier. And the reason why it's set that way is that when the book starts, Matt and his best friend Frodo are in a bar and, and they are both army veterans. And Frodo is arrested by two army CID or criminal in, in investigation division folks for allegedly a murder that took place 10 years earlier in Afghanistan. And so Matt um, kind of springs into action because he was there when, when Frodo allegedly try, uh, committed the crime and tries to figure out what actually happened that day. And what, what he discovers is that the men who were with them, the other commandos who were with them that day when the, when the murder allegedly uh, occurred, have begun to, dis to die one by one under mysterious circumstances. And so the only person left alive who was in the room with Frodo was their Afghan interpreter. And so Matt has to go to Afghanistan to find this guy as Afghanistan is collapsing around him. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a heck of a story, a very powerful and, and human story. We don't want to give away the uh, the the goods. No no spoilers here, but um, as someone who's a veteran of the Afghan wars mm -hmm. uh, of the last 20 years. I, I'm just curious, you know, what was going through your head? What emotions were you feeling when the Biden administration started to give back all the hard won gains that the United States had purchased there with blood and treasure over the last 20 years? Sure. Yeah, so it was, it was kind of two conflicting things. And, and I'll say that because so my uh, oldest son, I just um, went to uh, Quantico, Virginia to see him graduate from the second half of Marine Corps uh, officer candidate school. And so when he graduates from college this year, he'll be uh, commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Marines. So I was incredibly mm -hmm. proud of him, but he was born shortly, uh, shortly after September 11th. And so as a father and a veteran, um, I, I, I found it hard to come to terms with the notion that our children might have to go back to Afghanistan a generation later to do, you know, what to, 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 to carry on what fight that we couldn't resolve ourselves, you know, the 20 years prior to that. And so I think like a lot of veterans, I was probably ready for us to be done with Afghanistan. I just wasn't ready for the way in which it ended. And I think the the overwhelming sentiment um, that that I got from fellow Afghan veterans and, and honestly, people who served in Iraq and Syria and stuff, too, is that we deserved a better ending than this. Like, yes, I think we were were pretty content not to have American sons and daughters have to go um, serve and potentially die in Afghanistan again. But at the same time, the way in which it ended just felt like um, that, that what we did and what we sacrificed was for nothing. And that was very hard to come to terms with. And so that, that was kind of the common thread was the sense of frustration um, that we were owed a better ending than the one that we got based on the sacrifices um, that we made. And so that very heavily influenced 
forgotten war. It certainly is a book of fiction and it's designed to keep you up way past your bedtime. It's not uh, a nonfiction account of Afghanistan or, or trying to, to drive a political message by any stretch. But what I, what I like to tell folks is while the book is fiction, many of the operations um, depicted or referenced in Forgotten War actually happened or were based on things that actually happened. And the sentiment um, expressed by the cast of, of characters there, particularly the veterans, is very much or very much reflects the sentiment that I heard expressed to me as I was interviewing friends uh, as I was writing this book. Well, before the Biden administration took power, seem to recall that the Trump administration had um, made a, a deal with the Taliban basically to withdraw in a orderly fashion. Um, and, you know, I was expecting uh, the Trump administration to be reelected and to continue. And obviously when that didn't happen, what shocked me, you know, as a non-veteran, even frankly, as a Canadian, not an American in there, is the amount of military hardware that was left behind that did not need yeah. to be left behind. And I'm, I'm trying to understand, uh, am I wrong in saying that did not need to be left behind, right? The American military could have easily made plans to take all that hardware with them. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that, yeah, that, that, that for sure is one of the tragedies. And, and one of the jarring things is to think, you know, that we could um, potentially or, or our, our sons and daughters now could potentially um, face adversaries that are equipped with the with the very things that we left behind in Afghanistan. And so, I mean, there's a whole litany of things uh, that you can go through and say, OK, if if this was the plan, if this was the directive that we were going to get to zero boots on the ground in Afghanistan, why was it done um, this way? And I think that was. Um, not an insignificant portion, but just more more felt like rubbing sand in, in 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 your wounds to see, or rubbing salt in your wounds rather to see, you know, Black Hawk helicopters flying around with with uh, Taliban um, Taliban sympathetic pilots at the control now is, is 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 certainly a crazy crazy thing I never thought I'd see in my lifetime for sure. The powerful thing about your writing is it seems to be ripped from the headlines. The previous Matt Drake book you wrote was about Ukraine and the war in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. You seem to be prescient. You you foretold that that was going to happen. So is your next book going to like foreshadow some other series of geopolitical events, brother? What's going on? Oh, yeah, here? I, I you kind of hope not, but I think I think that's one of the things as a thriller writer. Um, specifically as a writer who writes um, political intrigue or, or international intrigue, what you're trying to do is look at the world and imagine what could be, uh, frankly, from a negative perspective and then how that would play out. And that's one of the things, honestly, being an army officer or a military officer in general uh, kind of makes you uniquely suited for. And the reason why I say that is that in the military, uh, there's a position called the S2, which is the staff officer in charge of, of uh, military intelligence. And so when you sit down to run a war game, that man or woman plays the role of the enemy. And so you actually set up an entire map board. And as you're walking through the operation, you have the blue forces on one side, which are if you're running a battalion or squadron level exercise, are all the company and troop commanders talking through, here's my task and purpose. Here's what I'm going to do. 
And then the man or woman who is the S2 says, here's what the enemy is going to do. And here's how they're going to react um, to what you've just done. And so that, you know, every every officer at one time or another um, plays a kind of plays that role or has that um, intelligence background. And so it, it helps a lot as a novelist because you're able to look out and then put put yourself in the bad guy's shoes and say, okay, what would I do? How would I imagine this would go out? And so um, Forgotten Wars, the fourth book in my Matt Drake series, but the next book of mine uh, that comes out is actually the fourth book in my Tom Clancy series. It's called uh, Weapons Grade. And so that one actually takes a look at another kind of um, current event in that it uh, looks like the Iranian WMD program, in particular, the Iranians creeping towards a uh, having enough enriched um, uranium to to form a nuclear bomb. And so it's another one. Hopefully that doesn't come to fruition, but it's a it's what we try and do, not necessarily beat the headlines, but to be able to look out and say, what are some real world problems uh, that I think are on the horizon? And, and, and can I write them about them in a way that's compelling to readers? Well, I'm actually originally from Iran, and I mm. left uh, Iran in um, 1980. Um, okay. And it was uh, August 21st, 1980. We left Iran. We went to Greece, spent a couple years there, and came here. And I'm very proud of my heritage, but mm -hmm. I would be horrified if the regime in Iran today got its hands on nuclear weapons. I think that would be very destabilizing, very dangerous for the world as a whole and yeah. uh, could bring the world to the brink of war, quite frankly, and not yeah. just be a regional war. I think if um, the Israeli government felt that the Iranian government was getting its hands on nuclear weapons, the raid that they had uh, in um, in Iraq back in 81 is yeah. going to look yeah. like a trifle compared to what they're going to try to do to make sure that Iran doesn't get its hands on a weapon. And I think that if somehow they're unable to successfully stop Iran from getting a weapon, uh, there's no question in my mind that there's going to be people in the Iranian regime that would advocate using that weapon immediately uh, against yeah. uh, Israel and, and, and possibly even other enemies in the region. You know, so yeah. crazy if you think about it. Yeah, I, no, that, I think that's absolutely right. And that's part of what my book looks at, because the... The raid that you mentioned in 1981 was just against a sing singular nuclear reactor. That the the nuclear weapons program was very isolated back back then, or, or in its infancy. Um, the Iranian one is is now across multiple sites across the country. That it it would not be as simplistic as a pair of F-16s going to bomb a, a single nuclear reactor. And I think I think you're right. I think the Israeli um, government across um, many different um, subsequent governments has made it very clear that they do not intend to exist with a nuclear uh, armed Iran. And and so I, I think that would be, and that actually plays into the book. Um, in the book, the Iranians discover that, or excuse me, the Israelis discover that the Iranians have been um, secretly enriching uranium and kind of give the U.S. an ultimatum that says either We'll take care of it, and it'll be very, very messy, and could um, result in a, in starting another world war just with us taking care of it, or you, the United States, have to deal with it. And unfortunately, um, that could be a, a situation we find ourselves in in real life as well. Uh, yeah, 
the the other major situation that we could find ourselves in real life is uh, having the uh, Chinese Communist Party decide that they're going to invade Taiwan and yeah. uh, reclaim the lost province, as it were. And yeah, I'm. Um, you know, as you say, you you do your best not to get political, but you know, I don't have any yeah. constraints. If the Biden administration is in charge, I don't think that's going to be good for the world. If uh, Donald Trump somehow gets back in the office, and that's an open question right now with all these charges they're throwing against him, it feels like the U.S. is going through its banana republic phase right now, Don. <laughs> you know, <laughs> with the main adversary to the current uh, uh, occupant of the White House is now the the target of all these raids. I never thought I'd see this in America in my life. I just thought Americans don't do this. Even if there's a reason to do it, they yeah. don't do this because they're better than this. But no, it's, uh, you know, it's happening. But if Trump's in charge, I think some of those threats uh, will not be quite as uh, serious as they now are. If Biden stays in charge, all bets are off, in my opinion. Well, I think the the uh, so the the Clancy book that um, I just released two months ago was called Flashpoint, and it has to do with um, China uh, trying to take Taiwan and kind of a conflict in the South China Sea. And I think I think politics aside, the conclusion um, that is that is uh, pretty uh, that I don't think anybody can argue with um, when you look at Ukraine and Russia is that it's far more cost effective effective and just effective in general to provide the nation at risk with the weapons they want before an invasion happens as opposed to trying it afterwards. And I think if you take that and look at the the China um, and the Taiwan situation, I think it would be much more cost effective in dollars and potentially American lives to turn Taiwan into a porcupine right now as opposed to potentially reacting to Chinese aggression after the fact. And I think, I just wish if we could, like I said, if we were capable of taking some lessons learned from from the Ukraine and, and Russia scenario, that that would be the one that we would take to heart right now. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, again, I'm gonna get a little political here, but I think the current administration is utterly incompetent, utterly incompetent. I mean, they make Jimmy Carter look competent and that's tough, <laughs> you know? Yeah, like I said, I try and, and steer clear of the politics thing, but I think you can, I think you can draw that lesson um, pretty definitively. And I and I wish we were working harder to apply that right now. Damn straight, man. Damn straight. There's 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 no question about it. All right, switching gears. How'd you come up with the Matt Drake character? I've always wanted to ask you that. Yeah, so I wrote three books before. So Without Sanction is the first book in the Matt Drake series. And I wrote three books before that um, that didn't sell. And so um, my editor for both my Tom Clancy and Matt Drake books is a guy named Tom Colgan. And he said he likes to say that when you are a new writer trying to sell your debut novel in genre fiction, you need to do something that's the same but different. And so what he means by that is that Brad Taylor is a great friend of mine. He's a former uh, Delta Force op- officer who writes the uh, New York Times bestselling Pike Logan series. And so our books should be shelved in the same area of a bookstore because they're both espionage or military thrillers. But I'm never going to write a better Brad book than Brad is. And so when I sat down to write Without Sanction, 
I thought really hard about that. And I thought, what are the things that I can do that are the same but different? And so I made a couple of choices that influenced who Matt Drake is as a character. And so the first one being um, when I looked out at the genre, there were a lot of uh, rough, tough um, assassins and special forces folks and things like that. But I didn't see too many authors using humor. And so one of my favorite writers is Nelson DeMille, who was kind enough to blurb Forgotten War. And he has a series character called John Corey that first appears in this book called Plum Island. And he is a really witty New York um, cop, a, a detective. And I remember reading that his first book. And I told my wife, like, I would read about John Corey going to the gas station because he's so funny and so much fun to be with. And I thought, you know, not a whole lot of people do that in the genre I'm trying to write. But the people I know, you know, over my time in the military and the FBI and then later working um, with customers in the special operations community, many of them have a sense of humor, a sense of gallows humor that allows them to to mitigate the really awful circumstances they find themselves in to make light of it. And so I decided to include that in my book and make Matt Drake kind of a witty guy. And so you see a lot of humor in my books. Uh, the second thing is that Matt Drake is is what's called a case officer, which is just a fancy way of saying he's a spy, and he works for the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA. And so DIA is an agency that is kind of a rival to the CIA. They have a lot of um, conflict because they have a very similar mission set. And when I looked out at the genre, I didn't see a whole lot of folks who were writing about that. And so Matt's job is to run and recruit what in the intelligence community we call assets, or when I was an FBI agent, what we call sources. And so my job as an FBI agent was to run and recruit sources. And I thought, you know, that's another thing I can bring to this book series that makes it a little bit the same, but different. And then the final part is that when I sat down to write without sanction, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm finally going to put the things in this book um, that have kept me up at night, that, that were things that were influential in my life and my career. And so when I was um, deployed to Afghanistan, I had a really bad day on June 28th, 2005. And I think a lot of people who are in that business have a really bad day at one point or another. And so, and without sanction, um, Matt Drake has a really bad day in Syria that costs him the life of his asset and his assets family and horribly cripples his, his best friend Frodo. And so the kind of things that Matt has to deal with and without sanction, things like survivor's guilt and the, the PTSD and such that comes with it are things that reflected some of what I dealt with and certainly a lot of what friends of mine who were veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan had to navigate as well. And, I, and so I think all of those things together um, are what made Matt Drake who he is. And I think also helped um, satisfy that formula of offering something that's the same but different. You know, I like the, the same but different. Uh, your friend Tom Kogan, he sounds like he really is a, is a perceptive uh, and brilliant man. And yeah, all the things you've explained about what um, guided your thinking in creating the Matt Drake character, they make a lot of sense. Yeah, it is in the thriller genre. Yeah, it's in the international intrigue world. But you're dealing with a DIA officer, the who yep. not a CIA officer. They compete with the CIA. They're almost seen as a 
uh, as a lesser cousin to the CIA. Yeah. Yep. Some people, yep. right? So there's a bit of a chip on the shoulder yep. action going on over Absolutely. there. Absolutely. That comes through there, which is kind of cool. Recruiting assets, I thought that was cool. The fact that, you know, Matt Drake had some bad days. You took a bad day that you had in Afghanistan. I wrote it down. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty That's pretty wild uh, that, you, that you had to go through that. I'm sorry that you had to go through that. And, and survivor's guilt, PTSD, all those things, that's powerful. And to me, yeah. it seems like if you're a writer, you need to come up with conventions uh, in your genre that other writers are respecting, and you can't completely stray yeah. from those. But you do also need to bring something to the table that is different, that is new, that really yeah, helps absolutely. get people pulled in. I love Matt Drake. I'm buying every book you write about him. I, I pre-order, man. As soon as the thing comes out, I'm, I'm like all, always pre-ordering. I read your clancy books too. They're really, really good too. Uh, but, you know, I'm getting into the Matt Drake stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, and I yeah. think it's really fantastic. I appreciate you saying that. And I get um, he's – they're both amazing to write. And starting next year in 2024, I'm taking over the uh, Vince Flynn Mitch Rapp series. And so I'm really, oh. really – excited about that yeah 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 it's, uh, i'm actually thank you thank you it's it's uh it's pretty awesome i'm actually writing my first um vince flynn mitch rap book now and it'll come out in september 2024 but it's it is um it's it's definitely a, a privilege to be able to do both because you you can certainly do things uh, in the world that you create that you, that you are, aren't able to do in some of the legacy series, but the, the legacy series for me, Vince Flynn is, is my favorite author. He's the one, um, when my second or third book didn't sell, I actually took my favorite Vince Flynn book and, um, took note cards and plotted it out and taped it to the wall of my bedroom. Uh, Cause I didn't have an office at the time. And it was for me, that really was kind of the difference between, looking at a house and looking at the blueprint of a house for the first time, I could kind of see how he did what he did and, and, and what were some of the things that, that he employed in order to get the incredible stories that he wrote. And so being able to, to now take over his series for him um, is, is, is pretty incredible. So, but it is, it's, it's a lot of fun, but it also um, all of it together is a lot of responsibility because those fans love those legacy characters. They love, you know, I got when, when they announced that I was taking over for, for Kyle Mills, who's, who's retiring from writing the Mitch rap books. It was most of the, the comments and emails and stuff I got from fans were positive, but they were all something similar to uh, welcome to the club, but this is my favorite character ever. So don't screw this up. And I think, I think that's a fair thing to say, right. Is that, they they are invested over you know almost 20 years in this character and they want him to live on but they also want you to stay true to what Vince Flynn's original intention for those characters were you know um Vince Flynn and Tom Clancy both died in the same year and mm -hmm. um, they were and remain two of my favorite uh writers uh in the theater yeah. of all time um Vince had a way of injecting humanity into his stories yeah that was incredible you know yeah people in his books in his in his original stories they weren't black and white they they were they were mm -hmm. 
human beings, you know, on, on both sides of the conflicts, you know, the good the yeah. guys and the bad guys. And yeah. he had a way of telling a powerful story, but also imparting powerful lessons. And his yeah. lessons were straightforward. He, he believed in America. He believed in the promise of America. He believed yeah, that yeah. Um, America was only going to remain safe as long as there were, you know, good men and women that were willing to fight, bleed, and die for her. And it was important that yeah. they be celebrated. And I think he wrote his books not just because he wanted to be a famous writer, he became a famous writer, but because he had a message to give to the next generation. And I also believe yeah. Tom Clancy was like that too. You know, when I first read The Hunt for an October, um, the, the one thing that struck me about that book was how powerful Clancy's love was for the, the honorable men and women that were part of um, the American uh, submarine um, yeah. service and how powerful his love even was for Marco Ramius, who was the, the Russian mm -hmm. skipper uh, of the hunt of, of the Red October, who in his yep. own way was a very honorable man and was trying to do what he believed to be right. And I learned from reading those books. I read those yeah. books when I was a younger man to learn how to be a man. Those books yeah. taught me lessons. And not to put more pressure on you, Don, but that's really what you're doing with with the Mitch Rapp series is you're not just telling great yeah. stories, man. You're you're teaching young men because a lot of your audience for these books are going to be young men you're teaching them how to be a man yeah you're teaching them how to keep their word you're teaching them how to put service above self you're teaching them how to be be uh somebody that uh other people admire and can count on man and i, I i'm excited for you and and it's um it's an incredible thing congratulations i appreciate you saying that and i agree with that i think um you know, when you read a Vince Flynn book, you can't help but come away with, um, like you said, the love and respect that he felt for his country and the men and women who go into harm's way on her behalf. And I think as a writer, he was the first kind of post 9-11 thriller writer to write this protagonist that that unabashedly his job was to go hunt down the nation, you know, his nation's enemies to go hunt down terrorists, to go get them in their caves so they couldn't hurt people here. And I, every, every single one of us who writes in that genre now owe a debt to Vince Flynn for that. And I think, I think all of us, if you look at our protagonists, there are shades of Mitch Rapp and every one of the protagonists of folks who, who write that now because he was the first, just like Tom Clancy was the first military techno, th techno thriller writer. Vince Flynn did the same thing for the post 9-11 war on terror. He really did uh, open up that open up that genre and, and I think perfectly capture um, the attitude of most Americans towards the men and women who were serving on their behalf during that, that time. Amen. Amen. Brilliantly said. Brilliantly said. To me, uh, a good writer is somebody who doesn't want to just become famous or rich or what have you. A good writer is somebody that has something to say, something deep in their soul that was put in there by God. And they feel strongly that it's their duty to get that message out in their work.
And the reason they write is because they want somebody who's reading that book, you know, somebody maybe earlier on in their stage of life, a younger person to read that and, and to have it touch their soul in the deepest possible way and give them a bit of faith, a bit of hope, a bit of inspiration, a bit of courage, so that in their life, whatever the life is about, they can bring that and live life as a better version of themselves. That's what I always felt I got from the great writers whose books that I read, you know, people like Tom Clancy, like Vince Flynn, yeah. uh, and uh, y yourself, uh, Jack Higgins back in the day uh, when yeah. he was writing you know, books like The Eagle Has Landed. And uh, yeah. I'm tickled pink that I get to have this conversation with you, man. This is pretty awesome. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. I think, you know, one of my good friends is uh, Nick Petrie, who writes the, um, his first book is called The Drifter, but he writes this character called Peter Ash. And he told me once that in a really good book, what's happening is that the author is trying to answer a question for themselves in the pages of their book or trying to find the answer to a question um, that they're wrestling with in the pages of the book. And so I think as a fiction writer, your first job is to tell a really, really great story. And I think sometimes if people approach it too much from the standpoint of here's this thing I want to beat you over the head with audience, that it comes off as kind of preachy and, and readers don't want that. But oh, I think if you, you are telling a really compelling story, you're probably wrestling with something that you're trying to figure out in the pages of that book too. And if you do it well, it's certainly going to give the reader something to think about when they're done reading the book too, hopefully. Yeah. And that's really what I think uh, good fiction can do. You know, um, there's a lot of folks in the type of business that I'm in who brag that they don't read fiction. They only read nonfiction. And I just, mm -hmm. You know, whenever I hear him say that, I just shake my head. I go, man, do you have any idea how dumb that yeah. sounds? Do you have any idea <laughs> how dumb you sound when you say that? The most <laughs> ennobling, the most ennobling work is that of a storyteller who tells a brilliant story that connects us all with our shared humanity. And you learn more from great fiction than you ever could from a how-to book. And I'm a, I'm a fellow yeah. who writes how-to books and reads how-to books. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. It's the truth, you know? No, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, that's if you look back across human history, some of the most powerful truths that, that were communicated were done through fables or parables or things. And that's the reason why. There's, we are preconditioned to appreciate storytelling. And I think, you know, even if you look in, in nonfiction book, in, in some of the most effective business case or, or some of the most effective self-help books or business books incorporate business cases or stories in there because it's still even if it's nonfiction, you're using the medium of storytelling in order to communicate and i think as human beings we're just pre-wired to be able to listen to stories to want to communicate through storytelling absolutely 100 percent and more and more people are starting to realize this in in the work that uh, you know i do professionally yeah and i think that when someone like you um gets to do what they do what's brilliant about it is you touch the lives of hundreds of thousands if not millions of people but you also inspire the next generation of writers to come up and say yeah man if this sure. can do it maybe i can do it you know maybe it's possible for me too absolutely yeah and absolutely who, 
delve into that from your perspective when you were kind of on your journey before you you, you achieved yeah. success and fame T walk us through that for a bit yeah so i mean i i knew um from a pretty early age that i wanted to be, be a storyteller and so it you know i even when i was a kid mowing the grass or something i'd be telling myself a story as i'm mowing the grass or you know, I'd read a book or, or watch a movie. And, and if it wasn't great, I'd think about how it could have been great. What what choices, what different storytelling choices um, could the writers have made? And so it took a while for me to be able to develop the tools um, that allowed me to tell the stories that I wanted to tell in, in a manner that, that made my work um, attractive enough for somebody to buy, because it's, it's really hard if you're creating any kind of art, right? To to be a good enough singer or songwriter for people to spend money on your album, and the same th thing if you're a writer. Um, for me, the the first person that got me excited about writing and wanting to be a writing was Tom Clancy, and it wasn't um, Red Storm Rising is the one a lot of people cite. I love that book, but mine or excuse me mine was red storm rising not hunt for the red october and there's a scene in there where there's an f-14 pilot who's um, doing strafing runs on this russian cargo ship and i just remember feeling like i was sitting in the cockpit as he was doing it and i knew it was fiction but at the same time i couldn't help but thinking it was real at the same time and i just remember thinking i don't know how he did that but i want to be able to do that i want to be able to tell stories that are so compelling that the reader knows there's fiction, but still, you know, believes that they're true. And so certainly um, Tom Clancy was a big part of that journey. Like I said, Vince Flynn was a big part of that journey. And in more contemporary, I've just been very, very fortunate to have friends like Brad Taylor and Mark Graney. And, and I mentioned Nick Petrie before, who really uh, invested in me when I was a young writer trying to figure it out and, and um, were willing to answer questions about writing and and you know for the that's one of the one of the conferences i still try to go to every year is called thriller fest in new york and that's where i met a lot of those folks and they have great writing classes and such there but you can also for the price of a beer get a master's class in the business of writing or something like that where you just you know buy a writer a beer or something and ask them questions what's it like to write how do you What's it like to have your book come out? What are the things you wish you would have done differently? And, and Jack Carr uh, is another great example. Like he's his first book, um, Terminal List, came out just a couple of years before without sanction. But he has upended the entire how books are marketed and sold with with everything he's done. And he's another incredibly generous person and, you know, always willing to talk, always willing to to give a little advice on, on um, things that worked for him or didn't. And I think um, I can't talk about the book community in, in general, um, though I suspect it's very similar just because I don't have experience with it. But the th thriller genre is made up of people who genuinely want to see you succeed. And I've certainly been uh, a beneficiary of that. Amen, man. Uh, these are all amazing people. I'd love to interview all of them. Uh, I've interviewed you. <laughs> I've interviewed Peter Kirsenow. Do you, do you know Peter? I don't. Uh -uh. So he's um, he was uh, hired by the W.E.B. Griffin uh, estate to take mm -hmm. over the writing of those books. Uh, so, yep. yep. Um, those are fun books as well. And he's got a yeah. series of his own books too. Uh, and uh, he also... Um, 
Uh, he's an attorney by day and he serves on the Civil Rights Commission too. Uh, mm. Really, really good man, really smart guy. Um, uh, That's he, awesome. Yeah, he's a cool guy. I should connect the two of you. I think you'd like each other. I think you'd like to talk to each other, man. You're up to some similar stuff. Uh, yeah, we probably have the same editor and had the same editor because my editor, Tom Colgan, also does the W.E.B. Griffin books. Well, there you go. So, so, um, so they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there you go. But uh, he, he's he been very generous with his time to me, and he's been very generous coming on the show. Uh, and I That's think awesome. He's going to be coming on uh, again. I, I, I love this stuff. I think it's great. Um it's been a dream of mine to get uh, to get a book, uh, a fiction book published, uh, not self-published, mm. published. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going. Yep, yep. And uh, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, so you've got two legacy series you're working on. You got your own book that uh, that, that you put out there. So yeah. what does this means in ter- mean? What does this mean, excuse me, in terms of your writing schedule? You must be yeah. darn tightly scheduled, right? Yeah, I actually had to was um once I got the opportunity to write the Vince Flynn books, I kind of took a step back from everything else for the first Vince Flynn book. And so um right now I'm only working on that one. Um my editor for the Tom Clancy and my Matt Drake books tom colgan is is a great guy and i was able to to talk to him and say hey this is i need to take a break uh, for a little bit while i walk work on this um, mitch rap book and so i'm i'm lucky enough where i have um more fire more irons in the fire than than i can i guess hammer it at any one time and so what my plan is is to finish this um mitch rap book and then look and see if i'm gonna do uh, another Matt Drake book right away or do a standalone or potentially do something else. I don't think I told him I couldn't do um, at least the next Clancy book. So I think he's going to find somebody else to do those. So I don't know that I will um, certainly not right away, continue the Clancy books, but I am not, um, I'm still going to do something of mine and I'm just not sure what that is yet. And so like I said, he's an incredible guy, and we kind of came to an agreement that I would check in with him in a couple of months and see where I am on the Mitch um, rap book, and then see uh, what I do next. But it's a, uh, it's kind of crazy. It's it it went from like I said, the first three books um, were were over seventeen years uh, that nobody really cared uh, what I wrote, and then um, success came pretty quickly. But I think that's the case with most you know, kind of quote unquote overnight successes is you don't see the years and years and years of of toiling before that, um, before the big break finally happens. That's a powerful uh, way for us to land this plane today. Um, Yeah. So, so Don, can you tell us what the title of the rap book is, or is that still a state secret for now? No, it's a state secret, and and to be honest, I'm I'm still in the in the very beginning stages of that, so I don't know if I could tell you what the total the title was, even if I had an idea. Yeah, all right, fair enough, fair enough. But hey, when it comes closer to the time where you can where you can talk about it, I'd, I'd love to bring you back on. I think it'd be absolutely fun. that'd be great. Absolutely. So, Don. Um, 
we like to end off every episode uh, with a couple of things. First of all, folks, go to Amazon or wherever you happen to buy your books. Type in Don Bentley. Go look at his entire list and pick a few books and buy them and read them. Uh, I'd I, I suggest that you buy uh, the first couple Matt Drake books and then a couple of the, the Tom Clancy books. Uh, Don is a brilliant writer. He does a great job. If you've read Tom Clancy before and you like his work, you're going to love Don's stuff. He stayed very true to uh, the characters and the stories. And the Matt Drake books are uh, similar but different. They're, they're awesome. So just go ahead and do that right now. Just go Thank type you. in Don Bentley and Amazon, pick them out, <laughs> put them in your cart, click the buy button. So that's number one. <laughs> number two, I bet you never had anybody do that before on a podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, first time. There you go. So secondly, um, Don, we like to end off every episode by asking you uh, as our guest expert to give what we call your top three expert action steps. These are your best bullet point pieces of advice to help the folks yeah. listening you know, get into immediate action and make things better for themselves. So what do you say? Yeah. So if you're, if you want to be a writer of commercial fiction, um, there are a couple things I, I want, uh, I tell everybody to do. And so the first is if you're working on a book and you can't tell me what writers your book should be shelved next to, then you have a problem because you are in commercial fiction, the person who buys your book and the bookseller who puts it on a shelf has to know where it goes. And so when, when an editor looks at your story, they're going to say, well, it's kind of like in my case, hey, this would fit with Brad Taylor and Mark Greeny and Jack Carr. Um, so I know, I know how to sell it to somebody. If they don't know how to sell it to somebody, uh, it's going to be really hard for you to sell it. And you should know you should be able to tell them that here are the authors that I write like. And if you can't, then you need to be reading more because that's the second thing in genre fiction, you're trying to sell to a particular audience. And just like if you were making a chest of drawers, instead of writing a book, you need to understand, does your customer want five drawers or four? Do they want um, cedar or some other kind of wood. What colors do they want? And the and the way you know that for commercial fiction is you read and and are become an expert on the kind of books your book is shelved next to. And so if you haven't done that or don't know that, I would highly suggest doing that before you start writing a story, because the second part of that goes back to what we did before. You're gonna need to write something that's the same but different. And so if you don't know what the same is because you haven't been reading in your genre, it's going to be really hard for you to understand what reader expectations are and what to deliver that's different, but still the same of what's out there already. That's the first one. The second one is in order to become a good writer, you have to write and you have to write a lot. And so in the same way, if you wanted to become a professional basketball player, and you thought, hey, I don't need to practice Monday through Friday. I can just take four hours on a Saturday and shoot free throws once a week. You probably aren't going to be hitting the NBA anytime soon. And so to become a writer, it takes both writing a lot, a lot of words, and it takes doing it consistently. It's the same thing as going to the gym or anything else that you're trying to do. 
it takes both duration of time and consistency of instances doing that. And so if you're not willing to sit down and write five or six days a week, you're going to have a hard time getting good enough to be a writer. And then I think um, the final part, and I can't recommend this enough, is that you learn to be a good or a better writer um, by being taught how to write by other writers. And, and the best way to do that, the most cost-effective way to do that is through good writing conferences. And so when I talked before about Thriller Fest, the people who started Thriller Fest were people like Lee Child and Heather Graham and Steve Barry and Gail Linz and just titans in the industry. And so it's people who were already successful writers. They were the ones who were teaching classes and so it, it's it's like you get to shortcut the process somewhat in that you get to learn from people who are doing it well. And so you don't have to have a degree in writing to become a writer, but you have to have kind of that toolkit of, you know, what are the what are the components of a scene? What are the beats in a novel? What is a three act structure? How do you write dialogue? And a writer's conference, a good writer's conference will have classes that will be able to teach you that. Man, these are awesome, awesome expert action steps, man. You should charge for that. There should be like a course that you put out there for thriller writers, you know, $9.97, and this should be a part of that, man. That's, it's that good. That is like commercialized, commercializable stuff. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, Don, thanks for taking the time. God bless you for the work that you do. And uh, listener, Don Bentley is the real deal. Like I said, go to Amazon, type in Don Bentley, grab a couple books from the list uh, and put them in your cart and buy them and start reading them. I know you're going to love them. And, uh, you know, make sure that you buy a few as gifts for friends and family uh, for, you know, birthdays, Christmas and other occasions where you're a gift giver. And I'm a big believer in giving away books as gifts. I uh, bought a bunch of your books in the past and gave them away as gifts. I've done yeah. that with other writers as well. I think it's really, really important. We live in a time where a lot of people are looking down their noses at reading, and I think that's a big mistake. You know, in, in this crazy yeah. digital world, reading and reading an actual uh, paper book that you can hold yeah. in your hands, there's nothing like it. I, I listen to stuff all the time. You know, and uh, I, I understand some people like to do Kindle type reading because it, it, it just saves space in their house. But look, look, this this sure. background of mine, this is a real background. This is this is the the, <laughs> the, the office of Nikki Ballou. And I think it's one of the things that makes me a better human being. So read books. and yeah. give. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me, Nikki. I really appreciate it. Right, you bet, man. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's amazing guest, the one and only Dom Bentley, go check out the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com. If you like the episode, if you like the advice that he gave, uh, give us a nice like, rating, review, and share it with somebody else who appreciates good writing and, and maybe is a writer themselves. I think they would really benefit from it. Until next time, goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.